I still have a little frog in my throat. So. Uh, I want to ask you a question this morning. Uh, and the question is this, what do you believe my job is as I stand here before you today? Do you think it's to make you feel better about yourself? Maybe in some ways and sometimes, but we understand that certainly cannot be the focus of it. Is it simply to reassure you of your salvation? Even though maybe this week you haven't really behaved much as if you were saved. Certainly those things have something to do with it. And I would imagine that was probably the perspective that many people would have in in regard to the office of preaching. Uh, And I'm not going to tell you that that thinking is totally wrong. But I'm going to tell you that it is not the central thing. That my job, and let me say this, I've learned this more and more as time has gone by. I've been doing this now for a, for a little while. But see, what I would say to you, my principal and primary job is to reveal God to you more and more and more. To help you come to know the God who loves you, has saved you more and more. And if I don't do that on Sunday morning, then I am not doing the principal and primary thing that I need to be doing. My job is to encourage you and strengthen you and build you in your faith. Faith not in yourselves, Faith not in the church, faith not in me, but faith in the God who has saved you and who loves you. Unfortunately, I would say that that mentality is very often not very much of a focal point for much of the preaching and the teaching that goes on in the context of the church today. More often than not, It comes across as just simply an encouragement for you to live a more holy life, (laughs) etc., etc., etc. But what I want to say to you this morning is if you come here today, and maybe you've been here for 25, almost 30 years, and you do not know the Lord God Almighty far better than you did when you came here, then I have utterly and absolutely failed you. We've been studying in John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer of Jesus, a prayer that he prays just hours before he's arrested. Now, he said all along that you can divide it into three different parts. Uh, The first five verses, Jesus prays for himself. And I think one of the lessons we need to get from that is this. Is, let me, do you think if, if it was appropriate for Jesus to pray for Jesus, it might be appropriate for Riley to pray for Riley and for Chris to pray for Chris? He 
He also prayed in the middle section for the 11 apostles, those men that were there in that room with him, who would go forth from that room under very great persecution a good bit of the time, who would tell the world about this Christ Jesus. We come to the last little bit of chapter 17, which really should be of maybe the greatest encouragement to us. So verses 20 through 26. I do not ask for these only who were these. He's talking about those 11 apostles that are with him. But also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. These know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. That part of this prayer should possibly be the biggest encouragement to people like us. Now as I look here in my Bible, I don't need to see the the name Walter Redman or Lucy May written here in Scripture, but I want you to know something. And that is this, is that in this high priestly prayer, these last words of Jesus before he goes through his trial and tribulation, you were on his mind. And he prayed for you. Now that is an awesome thing. It's hard for us to imagine that that there's any way in which Jesus could have the the, the person, uh, every person who would ever believe on his mind and in his heart. But that is the reality because we're talking about not Jesus, the man alone. We're talking about Jesus who is also God. I want you to know something. Even though your name does not appear here specifically in Scripture, Jesus had you in heart and mind that very moment. And he, in essence, lifted you before the throne of grace. His brother James... Not one of the 11 here. 
but a man who became a very big part and and took up a very important leadership role in the church in Jerusalem, who had mocked his brother early on in his life, who came to understand and believe that Jesus was not only his flesh and blood brother, but he was also the Son of God. And he lived his life accordingly, and he was martyred, by the way, brutally for his faith, eventually. He writes these words in his epistle, chapter 5, verse 16, The prayer of a righteous man availeth much. If that is true, how effective is the prayer of the one and only perfectly righteous man? It would not be a stretch to conclude that every single prayer that Jesus Christ has ever uttered for anybody has or will be absolutely and completely fulfilled period in other words what I want to challenge us with this morning is that Jesus' prayer sometimes our prayers are not very effective or at least they don't seem to be because we pray so many things that no one ever seemed to come to pass right But there has not been one single thing that Jesus has ever prayed for anybody that has not or will not come to fruition. His prayers always accomplish the perfect and absolute will of God. He says it right here. I don't see Deborah's name written here or Randy's or anyone else's in this room, but he says this. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So I have a question for you this morning. Why do you believe what you believe? I'm assuming that you believe what we generally believe as Christians. Why do you believe it? I would say this is true for absolutely every one of us, at least to some degree, and that is you and I believe because James and Matthew and John and the other apostles believed it and they wrote about it and they preached about it and now we have it written down in our Bible. In other words, we have believed in part because the apostles have believed. And they've passed on what they have believed and known to be true to people like us.
Again, I want to say to you this morning, you were not some vague thought in the mind of Jesus that night, but you were specifically and particularly on his mind and his heart. Because he knew you before you even were. There's a sense in which you are simply because he knew that you would be. Our faith is the proof that the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. That the, the, the will of the perfectly righteous man availeth perfectly. So who do you think should get the credit for your salvation? Jesus prays a number of things, but one of these he says that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us. If there aren't people in this room that you feel closer to perhaps than your own blood relatives, then I want to apologize to you this morning because that not, should not be so. There's a sense in which our bond in Christ exceeds every other human bond we would ha ever, ever have, including our dear family members. you're a part of the body of Christ, you know what I'm talking about. You understand what this unity is that Jesus is speaking of. And what we're saying here is that the church body as a whole is to be a reflection of the unity that exists between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Nowhere should this be more evident than in local church bodies. We are joined together in the unity of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's also the bond that holds the PCA together. You know, there really is an anti-denominational movement that's taking place in the church in America today. You understand that. that there's, there's a wholesale rejection of anything that's being passed on from the past. Everything's supposed to be new. Our approach, our outlook on everything should change this, that, and the other. world does not want us to be united. It wants to drive us apart. It wants to separate us. It wants to silence us. 
It wants us simply just to go away. I want to apologize to you this morning. Some of you know there's some truth to this. I mean, there actually is a lot of truth to it. When I first came here, I was bound and determined that Springs was not going to be an entity in this community that sat apart as this place on top of the hill. That there, in fact, was going to be some connectivism between Springs and the churches in this area. And I want you to know something. For years, I worked very hard at making that a reality. Very active in the ministerial association. Very active in Christians United in Christ for years. But at one point, your good old pastor got frustrated and sick and tired of certain things. And so I willfully determined to set myself apart from it. I got sick and tired of the inviting. I got sick and tired of, uh, of other church people thinking that they had everything, all the truth, uh, you know, cornered, and, you know, the things that we believed in practice here just were not biblical, and, you know, this, that, and the other. There was a particular pastor in a local church here that used to rag on me all the time because I was reformed. In other words, what I'm telling you is a pastor in the, in, in the church in general here, at one time I was very much persecuted and I didn't persecute anybody. Can't tell you how many times people told me that I was wrong in my perspective of biblical theology. Not because they could pick up their scripture and show me where I was wrong, but simply because their tradition said otherwise, and that's all it was. And let me tell you, it was with fear and trepidation that I agreed to have Christians United here again a year ago. And let me tell you something, I dreaded it from the very day that I agreed to it. But you guys experienced what took place here in this room that night. There was unity of the body of Christ that supersedes Springs Presbyterian Church. So I'm going to say to you this morning, we need to engage once again more and more into the Christian community. And let me tell you this, if you do that, you're going to find out it's not so perfect as you might think that it is. You may actually be persecuted because of your own beliefs in particular things. But what I'm telling you here is this, is there is a unity within the body of Christ that supersedes church bodies, that supersedes denominations. And we need to be very willing and very open 
even if it means a little discomfort on our part to participate in these sorts of things. And if you weren't here that night, let me tell you something. You missed something really cool. You just flat did. Mike did a phenomenal job preaching. All the stuff that went on. Was it God honoring? You bet it was. Was it was a focus on Christ Jesus? You bet it was. Sometimes we need to think more about the things that unite us rather than the things that bring some degree of disunity. Now let me just tell you something. The church today doesn't have perfect unity for the simple reason that there's still sin in it. And that's the only reason. And one of these days what is going to happen is Christ is going to bring an end to it. And the church will finally be that shining city on the hill fully and absolutely and completely united in mind and heart and purpose in every way imaginable. But where we are today, sin is part of the picture. That is what brings disunity. Our sins and the sins of other people. And let me tell you, it disgraces Christ when the church, or when the world looks upon the church and it doesn't see unity. What it sees is disunity. And that's because there's still sin here. And as long as that is true, it will not be perfect. It's what Jesus was praying for that night. That we would be united as one. You understand my point? And that is that this is, this is a product of sin. The simple fact that the church has not been perfected quite yet. In some ways it's a long way from it. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given to me. Death is about to separate Jesus and these 11 men. And they will be undone. They will scatter like unbelief when a shepherd gets struck. They will desert him to the man for a short time. Sin will have its time with them. But 
That's short-lived. The resurrection will change everything. Their lives will be changed eternally in ways that they could not have ever imagined that they would have been. Even though maybe Jesus told them over and over again it was going to happen, they didn't have a clue. They testified to the unbelieving world around them. Just as we are called to do. All of us. Not just particular ones of us. But everyone that goes by the name of Christ. Is to be that light on the hill. For others to see. With a hope that their eyes will be opened and their hearts rent. Jesus came for a lot of reasons, and one of those was to make God known to people like us in ways that he never would have been otherwise. Do you think if, Jesus, if, if God could have come up with some other alternative plan that would have accomplished what needed to be done, that he might have taken an easier path than he did? Everything that Jesus suffered, everything that Jesus experienced was absolutely a necessity. There was no possible alternative. Jesus gives you and I an opportunity, a golden opportunity that we don't very often think about, and that is the opportunity to love people in a way that other people just simply can't. They don't have the capacity to do it because they haven't experienced the love of Christ as we have. We very often want to love those people out there as long as they do what we want them to do. As long as they behave in a manner that we think is acceptable. Was that Jesus' attitude about us? I mean, we have the greatest news that any people have ever heard in all of eternity. And there are people out there who desperately, desperately need to hear it. Even though there are a lot of people who are desperately, desperately trying to shut us up. Now, I'm telling you, we are in treacherous times. I really believe this. 
I just heard on the radio yesterday that, that Tim Keller believes the same thing, and that is that the culture is becoming more determined to snuff us out. That there is this major shift in culture in the United States and the world today that is anti-Christianity and anti-Christians. Because the world does not like the truth. So what I'm telling you is that the days could be coming when it may be coming. Right now, I would imagine for some of you, you experience a little, you know, uncomfort sometimes for being a Christian when you're around some people who are not or something like that. But for the most part, our lives are good. I don't know anybody in this room that's ever been severely, severely persecuted for their faith in prison for it or, you know, some harm done to them specifically because they're a believer. Maybe that's true for some of you. I can't say that's true for me. The things here are changing. This culture is as anti-Christian as anything these good old United States have ever seen. But you know what? In the midst of it, the church ought to stand out like a sore thumb. And part of that would be because they find unity here in a way they can't have it and they won't ever see it or know it. And I want to remind us of something this morning. I think this has a lot to do with our approach to a lot of the things that we do. We all really believe this, that there's something special about me that made God love me. I'm different than other people. And because that's true, God chose to love me. That is fantasy. If you believe that, you don't know yourself. If you were looking down upon us from God's perspective before we came to think, to faith, there would have been absolutely no reason for you to do anything about it. See, that's the difference between us and God. He's not only a God of wrath and anger and all that other stuff, he is also a God of love, unbounded love, unlimited love, unbelievable and amazing love, which he sheds not on everyone, but on some. And it's that love that sets us apart from everything. It is the love that is the bond. It is our unity. And just remember this. We deserved everything but. 
everything but love is what we had coming to us. And he loved us nonetheless. Should that make it easier for us to love dirt bags and scumballs? Or what about that nice little old lady down the, the streets, just as sweet as she can be? You can't imagine she's ever done anything wrong or said anything to anybody bad in her whole lifetime. But she's not a believer. See, sometimes we think that. We think that if a person's good, or they look good from the outside, or they behave well, then they're in. No. No. Because what they do, they do for the wrong reasons. Not for the glory of God. They do it for their own glory in a sense. J.C. Ryle writes about this particular passage. How often Christians have wasted their strength in contending with their brethren instead of contending against sin in the devil how repeatedly they have given occasion to the world to say when you have settled your own internal differences we will believe you get the point The world looks upon the church and it sees it as this completely disconnected, disunity body. Because you have all of these different churches and all of these independent bodies and you have these denominations and you have the liberal denominations and you have the conservative denominations and you don't have just one brand or flavor. You have Presbyterians and you have Baptists and you have this, that, and the other. The world does not see the unity of the church, period. What it sees is a bunch of people who seem to be in total disagreement with each other about just about everything. Now, you hear that coming from someone is a very strong denominationalist. <laughs> I would have nothing to do with an independent church who refuses to be connected to other brothers and sisters in Christ to, for a lot of reasons, and one of those is to be held accountable by what, for what you teach and what you do. We're sinners. We need to be connected. And I think one of, the, one of the things that wrenches my heart more than anything is on occasion you will see a church in the PCA leave our denomination into independency. And it's always with the, the, with the idea that God is calling us to something different. God is calling us to something better. It's nothing 
but sin speaking to people and bringing disunity where otherwise there would be unity. Let me just say this. There will be a day when the church is fully and absolutely united. But it won't be until sin is completely washed from the picture. But what you and I need to do at this point is this, is do everything we can to minimize that disunity. To not let disunity define who we are and what we're about. I mean, what kind of a witness is the church in general to the world today, honestly? In respect to unity. Not very good. I hope that you know people in other churches, maybe other denominations, etc., etc., that you call brother and sister who you love just as much as you do the other people in this room. I mean it. We have a huge family. And it goes way beyond our doors. I'll tell you this. Eddie Fulford and I, we've known each other for a long time. Eddie and I have spent hours literally in prayer with each other in the past. And when I decided to kind of separate, we kind of lost that. But when I saw Eddie, if the, that's the first time I've seen him probably in five or six years. And you know what? We hugged and loved on each other. And brother, it's good to see you. We need to get together and have lunch. Na, 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 na. I hope you all have those kinds of relationships with people in other denominations and other churches. Don't let them lead you astray with false doctrine. But I hope, you, I hope there are people you know and you love dearly as a brother and sister in Christ who may vary a great deal in their understanding of certain things. Don't let the differences divide. Some differences are necessary. But we should not let certain things get in our way of loving our brothers and sisters freely and openly and fully. And some of you, I know you'd love this church, and some of you would say this, that I have, you know, I've been in church my whole lifetime, but I've never been in a body where I felt so loved and felt so much a part of it. That's great. That's wonderful. 
But I want to ask you a question. Do you want that for other people too? Really? Neighbors and friends? Acquaintances? We're going to do the Lord's Supper, which I forgot about until about two minutes ago. <laughs> this morning. And I don't, can't think of a more appropriate time for us to be doing this. Because what this is, first and foremost, of everything else, is a symbol and a sign and a seal of the unity of the church of Jesus Christ.